0: Hey, I'm Jess O'Cullaghan, and this is the Audiocraft podcast. An incredible interview takes any topic and turns it into gripping listening by finding the humanity at the heart of the story. It's not always easy. In Everything Is Alive, Ian Chilag flirts with fact and fiction and manages to find the moment of connection in every interview, even when his interviewees are a can of cola or a bath towel. Ian's the creator and host of Radiotopia's Everything Is Alive, where he interviews inanimate objects and mixes their fictional stories in with the real. He's also been a producer for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And he co-created and hosted the NPR podcast, How to Do Everything. Whether you're looking to interview made-up characters or real-life human people, you need to hear about how he makes this podcast. He spoke with me at the end of conference day. Um, so I'm really excited to chat to Ian today because I have every episode of Everything is Alive. I start expecting a look at the object and I say to myself, this one's not going to get me. Like this one, oh, all oh right, a subway seat. I probably won't cry in this one. Uh, you know, all uh, oh right, a pane of glass. Definitely not going to make me emotional. And by the end of the episode... There's always this moment where I have a human connection to a bath towel was the one that really I keep bringing up because it really shocked me. I was like, wow, this connection to a bath towel. So we're going to talk about the concept soon and sort of how you, how you came to it. But first I wanted to ask, how do you set that tone where it's such a strange mix of light and shade?
1: Well, I first want to say I didn't mean to make you cry, like <laughs> <laughs> I, never, you. <laughs> we, I never set out to make anybody cry, um, but I just wanted the show to feel real like I just want, I mean, I know I'm talking to inanimate objects, but I wanted it to not be a comedy but not be a tragedy and not be fact and not be fiction. Um, so I think it like in that way it mimics reality and that's why it's so emotional.
0: What sort of direction do you give to these guests to um, get them to bring that to the objects that they're being?
1: Well, I'm always looking for very funny people who don't need to be funny, you know? Like some people who are professionally funny need to be on all the time. And I just want – I want people who are capable of that but can also – sort of explore other parts of themselves. And so often it's people who are used to not being allowed to do that on stage. So I just tell them it's okay. It's okay if nobody laughs for a long time.
0: Is there something about being an object and embodying an object that um, makes it more okay, do you think, for them to explore human emotions and, like, the state of humanity? I feel like there are a lot of existential crises um, in your guests, even though they are objects.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, like, so many of our objects are – they have to contemplate their mortality Uh, (laughs) because, like, you know – there are objects that are used over and over again, like a subway seat, but then there are objects that are used once, um, and that one time that they're used is also the last time they're used. So they're, they're, really, they're more focused on death than we are, I think, <laughs> or equally, so...
0: Um, you just mentioned the subway seat. Um, I think for people who might not have heard the show um, I'd really like to to share a piece of audio that really uh, explores that sort of light and shade and how something that is uh, in its essence very absurd um, can also be quite emotional. Um, can you tell us about about Sean
1: yeah Sean is a is a subway seat in New York City who really loves his job he loves being sat on um, <laughs> Uh, he also is, I think it's it's important to know before listening to this he, um, Sean is attached, literally attached to the seat next to him Jerry and it comes out in the course of this episode that it's a love affair that they have this essentially a marriage um, <laughs> They, I think at one point Sean says I can't remember a moment without him <laughs> it's yeah, and it was a total surprise that that uh, emerged in the episode, but we'll we'll hear a little further in. I would love to sit on you. Yeah, please.
2: I would love to have you sit on me. You can sit on me right now if you want. I'll try it. Yeah, get up. Get off your chair. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Do and it.
1: Just maybe just describe how it's feeling Oh, to you. yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah.
2: Great. Yeah. Go ahead. Great. Okay, so initially, I feel your reticence. I had to have... You're yes. slightly reticent. Okay, and now I'm feeling you sort of soften because I called it out and I explained what it was, broke the ice, yeah. cut the tension. Great. So now here's what I feel. At your soul, you are a kind, gentle person. What um What do you call your engine? People's engine, what is it called again? My heart? Yeah, yeah, your heart is like moving, beating very low and slow. Do you exercise? I'm, I'm a runner. You're a yeah, runner. Okay, yeah. great. What's the most you've ever run? Uh, I've run a marathon. 20, wow. 26 miles. Okay, well, I'd go more than that in a day, but <laughs> I know it's less less exertion for me. Um, you're happy romantically. You feel like you're satisfied. Um, you're just like a salt of the earth, Good guy, you're you. You've rented some weird movies in the past, and like I won't, I can't tell if they're dirty or maybe they're like they're just one of the like some weird horror movies or something. But there's something like you've watched some weird movies at some point. Now you're super relaxed. Now you are. You could almost go to sleep. I could feel like you're almost like really relaxed.
1: I, well, I have to say that um, the this talking to you as I do this, I'm just thinking about, there is something relaxing thinking about uh, the connection that you make when you sit down. Yeah. And you know what's great?
2: I feel like more people would be even more relaxed if they knew how it made the seat feel. Because initially you might think, oh, I'm sitting on this seat. It must be uncomfortable. It must hate it. We love it. We love it. Your your couches, your dining room tables, you know, your seesaws, whatever you're sitting on wants to be sat on. That's why we are there. Seats are for sitting. Seats are for sitting. That's awesome. I'm going to tell Jerry that. Seats are for sitting. Wow. That's everything. That's everything.
0: So everyone must feel a lot differently about the seat that they're sitting on right now.
1: Can I say, I don't usually do this, but I sat on the actor. <laughs> um, it really, it was relaxing.
0: As you were recording?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that whole part is recorded into his microphone. <laughs>
0: um, so how do you go about finding Sean, someone who'll um, be up for performing as a quite emotionally intelligent subway seat that also lets you sit on him.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'd, yeah. The No one is... We don't tell people that they might get sat on him. <laughs> um, weirdly, so our producer Jennifer is keeping an eye on the improv and comedy scene um, and is seeing people who might be good. Um, and... When we find somebody, they're usually pretty eager to do it, you know. I think just to be asked to do something they're not normally asked to do. Um, Yeah, it's like, it's a fun exercise. I think it's like, it gives you, we tape for about 90 minutes. And it's 90 minutes of just being forced to think about the world differently, which is not a bad way to spend the time.
0: Are they all comedians? Have you um, found them all in the comedy world?
1: Um, Comedians, improvisers. uh, There's one, uh, Chioki, who's now been on the show twice. He played a grain of sand and then played, uh, he got melted and became a pane of glass. Uh, (laughs) um, And he's actually a philosophy PhD, um, which if you listen to the episode is very clear. but, yeah, he's he's the only, I think, non-professional performer.
0: Um, and so you pick these uh, comedians and Jennifer sort of scouts the improv scene and, and selects the comedians. Um, how do you come about which objects they're going to inhabit?
1: I keep a running list of uh, 40 or 50 objects that I'm interested in talking to.
0: <laughs> do you just see them and it? you think, oh, this spoon...
1: You'll do. Yeah, and it's weird because some things jump out and some things don't. Um, Some things feel like they would naturally have a personality. Also, there's something about, like, um, when things are alone, it's easier to, like, I can imagine talking to that, you know? (laughs) Like, who left you there, you know? Um, And like things with a lot of moving parts, like I'd love to do a car, but I I kind of can't get my head around it. Um, Like that's, who's interested in that now? Uh, Yeah, so I, I keep this list and then I do a little bit of research into the objects on that list to see if there's real information to back up the interview. And then usually I'll give the actor three things to choose from and they pick the thing that feels closest to them.
0: And when they're choosing a thing, because um, the objects aren't just you know, any glass, they're specifically this glass on our table here. Um, so are you, <laughs> are you giving them this, the specific object or are you giving them um, sort of a glass and then it's, it's a process of creating the specificity and the character ar- around that glass?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very it's very important that um, they, in part of the prep, it's very important that they be playing one glass and not representing all glasses. That's something that keeps it from feeling like edutainment. Um, but yeah, I think we have a vague picture of which glass it is when we first start talking, and then we talk for half an hour to figure out whether it's an optimist or a pessimist. It's clearly more than half full <laughs> right now. Uh, and, you know, basic personality traits. Um, and so I think by the end of our prep, we have an idea of the specific thing it is.
0: Uh, what sort of processes do you use to develop the character of the object?
1: Um, we, I, I like to ask questions about the thingness of it and how that would inform its personality um, so just continuing to use this poor glass as an example um, do you like being filled up do you not like being filled up um, when someone pours gin into you do you get drunk um, just uh, and do you do you like being see-through is it does it feel naked when somebody can see right through you to what's on the other side of you and then you just sort of ask those questions and don't get answers for them um and through that process you start to get a sense for if they're you know just sort of like the basic character notes that then we get to specifics during the interview
0: and um the interviews aren't though just random facts about the about the objects they really have this strong story running through them so how do you is that all done in the studio or is that a a workshopped um story beforehand as well
1: yeah that so i almost always have an idea for what the arc of the episode is going to be and i am almost always wrong um we uh yeah it's usually just stronger and more genuine things come out of the improvisation um and i just have to go with it and abandon the thing i had in my head
0: did you plan to sit on sean Oh
1: no, no, yeah, happy to do it, but but no.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And so you um, you then get in the studio, and the the planned art kind of goes out the window, and you start to to ask the object questions. Um, what's that like sitting across from someone? And um, you know, have you had any feedback from the guests about what that feels like to be interviewed by you?
1: I I think yes, I have, and. Both for me, for me, it doesn't feel like performance. It feels like interviewing a thing. It feels I mean, I feel the same as I do when I'm interviewing a, a human being. Um, and I think they feel weirdly like they're being the thing. It's just, It's such like a it's such a serious deadpan setting. Um, like I don't I don't want to hear any performance. I just want them to sound like people talking. Um, and so there's just like all these different constraints that make it feel real. And so I think that they're not doing any tricks of performance, you know, like there's no, no funny voices in the show. That's a rule. So yeah, I think it's like weirdly real for everybody.
0: There are certain, um, quirks of being interviewed, I think that people have and, you can hear them in some of the objects. Even though they're being objects, they still use the same quirks as humans use when they're being interviewed. So um, the one that comes to mind is in the Russian doll episode that you um, recently put out. The, the three Russian dolls uh, were learning about each other like during the interview, which I think is a real um, thing that happens in actual interviews. People will say, oh, I've never heard her say that before, but now that she's being interviewed, she's talking about about this, you know, um, are there, do you find that, that there are these, um, that there are these human characteristics that the objects have, um, that they, I mean, are they putting that on or is that a genuine sort of people are the same being interviewed whether they're objects or not?
1: Yeah. Well, I think because it's improvised, you know, we, we fall upon a lot of those things. Um, I find size a lot more useful in this show than anything i've ever worked on um i just i will play around a lot with deep breaths and long pauses because i think like imagining a subway seat sort of something having to (laughs) something affecting them and hearing that just in how long it takes to answer but yeah i mean we're definitely using um probably amplifying basic human ticks to make the objects seem more human.
0: And so how long would you interview an object for?
1: Usually 75, 90 minutes.
0: And, um, and that turns into a much shorter episode. 20 minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, and in there you have to go and find this real world comment. So can you talk a bit about like that element of the show and, and how you bring the, the real world expert into it?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, so we always make a, we do a phone call and talk to a human being, um, and I used to, those are easier to book, so I used to plan them ahead of time, but I was always wrong about the point in the episode where we would want to leave and talk to a human, so now we do the improvisation, edit it down, and then there's usually a place where it feels like there's a question to go leave and talk to a human. And I like to, I like to not prepare that human at all. If I can cold call, uh, that's better. Um, I really like it when it sounds like the human kind of hates me or, <laughs> like hates having been called, because it, uh, the object interviews are all they're very kind. Like we like each other, um, and so I like when somebody is just like, no.
0: <laughs> the one who had radioactive waste in his
1: yeah. He's okay.
0: (laughs) He did not seem to enjoy you pointing out that he might have been selling a radioactive can of cola on the internet.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm really worried about I was really worried about him. Uh, This guy had been selling possibly radioactive material at a flea market um, and didn't realize it would be a problem and discovered that in the course of our conversation. Uh, I think he's okay. He's probably Okay.
0: Um, so if you can't you can't plan ahead because things change so often in the studio. Um, how how often do you kind of yeah find yourself just really surprised by by what the others are saying?
1: Um, yeah, every time. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and can you tell me a bit about Maeve the lamppost?
1: It, well yeah, Maeve is one that I had so Maeve is a lamppost in Brooklyn, New York and I had this arc in my head that um, the whole story would be that people were attaching lost dog signs to her and she loved them and or loved the dogs and was worried about the dogs and the whole episode would be about her never knowing what happened to the dogs because people don't then put found dog signs <laughs> on LAMFOS. Um, and I thought that that would be kind of a beautiful arc and that maybe at the end of the episode I would actually – go to one of the find one of those signs and call somebody and give Maeve some resolution about this thing that they that she was worried about. Uh and then the episode just they just didn't happen. Like Maeve found this whole thing about the fact that she was tall and she could see into apartments and was constantly watching television and became obsessed with movies, especially movies with lampposts in them <laughs> and um kind of like had this weird dream of becoming a movie star. Um, so that, that became the arc of the episode.
0: Let's play a bit of Maeve.
3: Like in London, right? On this one street in London, um, a few years ago, they had to actually cover all the lampposts in foam to protect people from like banging their heads.
1: They've put padding around a yeah. lamppost so that, so yes. that when it inevitably somebody runs into someone like you.
3: Yeah they won't hurt themselves because they'll just like bang their head into this foam and I'm like you know what what I think would be better why not put the foam on the on the human's heads
1: it does seem like um, sort of the wrong it seems like the wrong solution to the problem
3: I think a much better solution would be to put foam over a person's head Mm -hmm. because so many people like don't seem to see me yeah you know and it's almost like Guys, I'm right here. (laughs) It's been a long time thinking I'd be discovered and not even being noticed. What do you mean? I don't need to be, like, the star of a film. But I'm just talking about, like, put me in your episode of Girls. Put me in your, um, The Americans. I'm, you know, steady presence I can be on or off, depending on the time of day. What I'm saying is i versatile. I think I'm old enough now to handle the fame. So I think now is like, I'm ready.
1: You know, it's just, um, it's just audio, but we could um, make a movie right now. Yeah? Yeah, we just like, we um, start by, you know... First, we'll we we'll bring up a little sound. Uh, and, and then just like, um, yeah, like ec- exterior Brooklyn. Yeah.
3: Nighttime, mm-hmm. nighttime, because if you want me to be on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So,
3: so you have to say nighttime.
1: Exterior Brooklyn nighttime. hmm Okay. So then like Mave,
3: Maeve. Maeve. Yeah.
4: Lamp post. Lamp post. Stands. Stands on the street.
3: Can you already kind of see what's happening?
4: Well, I I think, like,
1: you know, I think a a romance. Maybe it could be Mm. a love story, Mm -hmm. some kind of love story. Maybe a couple...
3: Yeah.
4: A couple wanders nearby. A couple, 20-something, lingers nearby.
3: Can I do an inner monologue? Absolutely. Okay. We can't shine all the time. And that goes for everybody.
4: Um, And then,
1: like, maybe one of them says to the other... my, honey, I'm sorry I don't have any money to take you to the movies.
4: They have sees the couple, so in love, without a dime in their pockets.
3: Okay, and then and then what does my, what happens with my character?
4: Well, I think um,
1: you know it's a movie, so you can kind of do whatever you want.
3: Yeah.
4: Her light flickers a bit with an idea. She bends at her waist, something she can do now, because, well, this is a movie. She leans all the way down till she's doubled over. She offers her lamp for them to sit on.
3: Come on, you two, let me show you something.
4: The couple looks at each other and sits down on Maeve's lamp. She raises herself up to her full height. They look across the street and see singing It in the Rain just starting on the TV.
3: I hope you like it.
4: The couple holds hands and watches the movie high above the street. Maeve turns on her light. The couple kicks off their shoes, and they land in its glow. And then I guess, I don't know, what do you want to do, like a star wipe?
3: Or oh, that? yeah, to fade? Yeah. Yeah, I think star wipe is too jaunty. I think it should just be like um
4: fade to black.
0: <laughs> There's something about both those pieces of audio that we played that is really um interesting about all of these interviews in that they're really physical like that um that clips really physical you can picture um the lamppost doing things bending in half and and you know sean we're we're imagining you sitting on the subway seat um and yeah i just wonder with something so abstract how are you imagining what that looks like you know when you've got an actual human and not a lamppost sitting in front of you in a studio
1: yeah it's um sometimes we have you know a picture of the thing or the thing in the studio with us. Um, the lamppost was not an option to have one. Um, but I'm I'm usually very careful about not doing any visual description or doing very little visual description uh, in the show because um, when I was first creating it um, and giving it to different people to listen to, I got all this feedback about... Um, oh, okay, but where is the can? Like, is it in a refrigerator when you're talking to it or is it in a studio and does it have a microphone and is it a lav mic? And, um, and I, don't, I don't ever want to answer those questions. I just want the whatever is happening in your brain when you're listening to what you just listened to. Um, like, I picture the show in one place. I think some people picture it in a studio. I think some people picture it in the field. Um, and but I just like I like to have as much of it as abstract as possible so that you can just graft your experiences onto it which is why like the couple in that last clip is called a couple they're not it's not a man and a man or a man and a woman or a woman and a woman it's or whatever it's um, so it's just like to leave as much undefined as possible because it's going to happen in your brain anyway
0: What have you learned about um, interviewing objects from interviewing humans at other points in your career? So um, working on shows like Fresh Air, um, what have you learned about, what lessons have you taken from that and then applied in these strange situations?
1: Um, I think just, you know, paying attention to your being aware of your own curiosity. I think... um, asking dumb questions is really important. Um, I think the best interviews, the interviewers ask really dumb questions because um, they're not ashamed to ask dumb questions. Um, and most people don't get a- asked dumb questions, and so uh, you get answers that someone hasn't said a 100 times before. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, it's, it's weirdly um, exactly the same as talking to a person.
0: Um, and do you think that, because it kind of combines your two skill, your two sort of radio skills. It combines this like comedy writing world with um, really strong interviewing. Um, do you think that you've been like training your whole career to make this very, very strange show?
1: Uh Maybe. I mean, I just, I always wanted, um, I think like I wanted, I just wanted to make something weird. Um, and I wanted to, I think also just there's like wait, wait is a show that can only be funny and never, I think to, to the, to its benefit never approaches anything serious or emotional. I, I think because in that format, that cuts that kind of comedy. Um, and so I think I was wanting to um, be, I, w- I was wanting to kind of combine emotion and comedy in a way that I wasn't able to do in other things I was working on.
0: And how much of that happens in the edit? So we've talked about how much you record, how long you record for, and then how much you cut that down. Um, and how, how do you go about that? You take all of that tape and then turn it into, into what we hear. How do you even start?
1: Uh, It's a nightmare. Um, It's really hard. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's usually like a few scenes that I know are going to be the tent poles of the show. Um, But then finding an arc um, and finding the material that we have to build an arc that makes sense and isn't predictable. And um, it's, I mean, it's, I don't know, eight or nine rounds of editing to get it to its final product.
0: And in between those rounds, are you leaving it and then coming back to it or are you giving it to other people to listen to?
1: I do a lot of it on my own before other people hear it. Um, And yeah, it's usually pretty close to done when if we have an editor that week, our editor hears it. Sometimes it's just my wife and I listening to it.
0: What have you learned since you started doing it? Like, what are you doing differently now that um, you weren't doing in that editing process back when you started?
1: I The main thing that's changed is I ask really leading questions now, which is a real no-no when talking to a human. But um, in this format, to the glass, I, you know, I would ask the glass, have, have you ever had, I don't know, have you ever had a... a a terrible beer in you (laughs) and now i say tell me about the time you had a terrible beer in you which is like a tiny thing but i think because i'm working with improvisers they want some meat to work with and i want to be creating images and so i think of what those images are and then sort of force them into it with questions um yeah the main thing is I'm, i'm i control the show a lot more than i did in the beginning
0: I've noticed in the last couple of episodes you've, um, I mean, you've had Chioki come back, which is um, something that you mentioned earlier, and, um, and you also interviewed the Russian Dolls, which is three guests. Are you actively sort of exploring the format and kind of like pushing the edges of, of what might be possible?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's such a – the show is such a concept that I think it'll get tiring um, if we just keep doing the same thing over and over. Also, I'll get bored. Um, so yeah, I want to find ways to do different things with it. I'd like to do more extremely different things with it. Um, you know, I'm not sure what that is exactly, but I'd I'd like to take just the base sensibility of it and do other things.
0: So more than three (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) interview every chair in this room all at once. Yeah. Um, and do you ever find yourself sort of Forgetting that you're not interviewing the thing, sort of like swept up in the emotion and the um, sort of yeah, swept up in the interview and just sort of taken away with it.
1: Yeah i i get I get weirdly emotional when it gets emotional, um, which I'm surprised by, because I'm totally aware that it's that we're pretending. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, like. In the first episode uh, with Lewis can of cola, uh, at the end of the episode, I drink him, uh, which I knew I would try that. I didn't know what would happen, and he didn't know, he didn't know that was coming, the actor. Um, and while it was happening, it was very emotional. I think I, I may have actually had tears in my eyes while I, was, <laughs> while I was drinking the can of cola. Yeah, and it's surprising.
0: Can we listen to that yeah. piece? Just to be clear, you mentioned earlier that you actually sat on Sean. <laughs> How did this one work?
1: I, I picked up Lewis cornfield. <laughs> now I, I, had, I had a can of generic cola and set it on the table and Lewis just sort of imagined what, what it was like. But I was, I was actually drinking it. Um, All right, let's have a listen. Him. I was drinking Him. <laughs> I feel weird saying this, but um I could drink you right now. Yeah. I mean I want I I I I want you. I'm I am thirsty, but I also I want this to be a good moment for you. I I want you to be ready. I don't want you to do it if you're not ready.
5: Well, I'll make a deal with you. I've always said I wanted to go with my eyes wide open. I'm prepared to end it here if you promise me that even if you're disgusted by how I taste, you will finish the can.
1: I I will make you that promise. Is there anything you want to say to the humans you've encountered, the cans you've encountered, the countertops you've known?
5: I think I think overall I would say life is a gift and a blessing. And I don't believe anything ends, but everything simply transforms into the next thing. I would say, uh, if I can be a little bit soft-hearted and sentimental for a moment or two. Uh, it's a gift to get to be anything at all. Hmm. Well, maybe what what we'll do, in the,
1: just in the interest of, of journalism, is I'll, uh, I'll drink about half. Mm-hmm. And then we'll check in again. Great. Do you want to talk while I'm drinking you? I don't... No. Okay.
5: No, I want to have the full experience. Okay. But I'll check in with you at the halfway mark. All right, so um, I'm, uh, I'm picking you up. Give me one second.
4: Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm.
5: This I have to say feels delightful.
1: Alright, well, um, I guess uh cheers cheers to you with
5: you. Here's hoping for the best. I mean, you're um, you are delicious. Thank you. You're very gentle. This is a trippy feeling. I'm not gonna lie. All right, my first report. <laughs> feeling very spacious inside right now. Feeling God, I got, I got room to be. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm feeling the warmth of the tummy. Very strange thing. I'm in two places at once. Spacious in my own body, but feeling warm and secure in your own tummy?
1: hmm Wow. All of a sudden, I find myself uh, thinking about my body. I'm thinking about my body, and I'm hoping that my body is a good place for you. I think so.
5: I don't mind telling you my first impression of the inside of your own tummy. You seem to be taking pretty good care of yourself. Thank you. Yeah.
1: I am seeing some are you sweating? I'm seeing some with joy. All right, I'm going to I'm going to have
5: a little more. You go ahead and finish me off.
1: Okay. Are you are you still there? Really, we played we played two clips where the thing tells me I'm very healthy. <laughs> it's the only two times it's happened.
0: So, how do you feel when you're recording that?
1: Uh, upset, yeah. Uh, also thrilled, like because it's it's it like it feels real to both of us in the room, and we both know it. So it's thrilling, but it's also when you're in it, it's. Um, I don't know. It's so weird that it its so weird that it has any impact, but I guess that's the show. It's weird that the show has any impact.
0: <laughs> um, something that I do want to ask you before we take some audience questions, so maybe think if you have a question because um, we'll take them in, in a moment. Are there rules in this world being established over time? So, for instance, in that clip we just heard, um, the essence is in the combo of the can and the cola, you know, and once the cola's gone... You know the character no longer exists, and um, I mean in Chiyoki we have this grain of sand that is still Chioki as a um, as a pane of glass. So yeah, I'm wondering if there's sort of um, rules being built upon each other, and or if each each episode has its own sort of system.
1: Yeah, no, there are there are important rules that govern everything, which is. W- One is no funny voices. (laughs) But in the reality of the show, it's important that um, there's only one difference between the world of this show and the real world, which is that things can talk. They can't move. They can't make decisions. Um, I realized three episodes into making this show that I made a show where, an interview show where none of the guests had free will, which is like, it's challenging to explore that in ways that feel unique each time. Um, so there's, And it's important that there's no magic in the show. Like the Sean clip that you heard where he's sort of telling me about myself, um, he said earlier in that show that he can just feel sort of tension in the mud. He says the butt is the window to the soul because <laughs> he can feel tension. Um, so yeah, I never, want, I never want anything to be magical except for that. So, like...
0: That's science. Though.
4: Yeah, no,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, for Maeve to be able to bend over, we made a fantasy inside of a show that is a fantasy to to make it possible. Um, yeah, and, you know, I thought, actually, like, we brought Chiyoki back. Um, Chiyoki never died, and he just sort of... His episode just ended. Um, someone, after we finished the first season, said... Your show is called Everything's Alive, but only 80% of your guests survived the first season. <laughs> uh, but, so I, I had thought a long time about bringing Lewis back, recycling him, having him be like a, um, a fence somewhere or maybe a razor scooter, um, just like something that would be really punishing for him. Um, but I just, I like him being gone. I just think that like it's it's good.
0: I like that he's, his form – didn't he have dreams about his former life as, as something? Maybe you could bring yeah. him back as something that dreams of being a can of cola yeah. but actually isn't Lewis or something. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there are these little rules that just get sprinkled in every so often and, um, yeah, it's really interesting that you're kind of building that structure there to work within from the start sort of coming up with these rules.
1: Yeah, and it's it's fun. I tell the rules to to the actors and it's fun when they – Utilize them rather than just feel restricted by them, like the there's a point in the Russian doll episode. I can't actually remember if this made made it, but um yeah they I want to talk to them about being opened up, and because of the rules, they have to ask me to do it, and it becomes this scene where I'm just like essentially torturing them by opening them up that made it yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah, I like i mean those limitations are they kind of protect the show from feeling fake, but they also sort of give us tools to play with.
0: I'm gonna open it up to audience questions, if anyone has a question for Ian. And we have a microphone that's gonna come around. So if you, um, there's one over here, Darren, if you'd like to hand up and Darren will bring a microphone over. Thank you so much for creating this emotional journey for (laughs) all of us and for joining us today. Uh, My question is, part of your style of speaking is to make amazing use of silence, almost painfully long stretches of silence that are part of what makes it so funny. Do your guests also match you in these silences that we ultimately hear in the final cut, or during the edit, are you stretching out these spaces?
1: I do take a long time to talk, (laughs) uh, but I do add space sometimes, Um, and Yeah, it's funny. I sometimes will notice us following each other's energy. Um, And I've noticed this in interviews with humans that I do, too, where if they're a little low energy, it'll bring me down, and then they'll follow that. And so um, I've learned to be aware and counter that. Um, So I think I get bigger when they get smaller, or I get faster when they get slower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's. I I like that. I like the discomfort and awkwardness of that space, and you just like find the place where it's almost too much and stick it there. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. So you're so you're not stretching it out in the edit. A little bit. Like You are. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks. Hello, uh, I noticed you sort of suggest questions to listeners, and as you said, you purposely ask dumb questions. Uh, like with the cola episode, it did come up in my mind what would happen if the cola was drunk. Um, so is that on purpose? You know, this idea of playing on people's curiosity and, you know, how do you go about that? A bit more go into detail on that?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think there are, there's like a category of questions that are um, the questions that we would have about these objects in general if we could talk to them, you know, like, how does it feel to be sat on? Um, And then sort of once we get through that gauntlet of questions, there's the questions about um, the specific life of the thing. Like, what do you and Jerry think about doing in retirement? You know, what are you in the seat next to you? Um, And I think that uh, there's, the show needs to be a mix of those things to sort of I think a lot of the comedy comes out of those basic questions of our uh, expectations of these objects versus how they feel about it. Um, And then the story comes out of that that other layer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always careful to make sure that we're drawing from both those pools. Is that... I can't tell if I'm answering the question or not.
0: Thanks for your delicious work and um, sort of part two, two part question, Um, could you share with us the kernel, the seed, the initial conversation, the feeling, the thought that created this project for you? And uh, a cheeky question, is everything alive?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, It's funny, I I mean it's always been a way that I've joked around, you know, um, pitying my chair for having that terrible job. Um, but uh, I I recently very recently I was looking through the notes app on my phone um, where I just will jot notes that then make no sense to me later Um, and I found one from maybe eight years ago that said um, something like I feel I think about the vegetables alone in the fridge when the light goes off and I feel sad (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Oh God, this has been happening a long time." Um, so, yeah. In answer to your second question, I well, I guess we'll see. We'll just, we'll go as long as we can.
0: The um, the other part of that question as well is the first sort of conversations you had about it. Like, what were people saying when you? How do you did you first express express that idea to other people, and and what was the reception?
1: Um, mostly mostly good you know (laughs) mostly people sort of understood and thought it might work I think most people thought actually thought the show would be very slapsticky and there were people who were disappointed a very good friend of mine um, who I love and respect his criticism a lot uh, I played him the Lewis episode when I finished it, before I pitched it to Radiotopia. Um, and he came back and he said, I just thought the show was more gonna be um, like you're talking to a croissant and the croissant has a French accent. <laughs> 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 I was like, I, no, that's like, we, that's not what I wanna do. You said rule one, no funny voices. <laughs> yes. and, yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and, but I also I think that the expectation that it's gonna be slapstick is also um, a reason it's effective is I think on a first listen, you expect that it's gonna be, it is silly, but you, you expect maybe that it's only gonna be silly, um, but then it's, it's not. Do we have another question? Hi, uh, I just wanted to ask, are there any objects that are absolutely off limits for you? Is there anything that you wouldn't want to interview? <laughs> Nothing's off limits. I, I, I do. I there are objects I feel like I'm not ready to do. I like I. I want to talk to a gun, uh, but I don't feel like I'm ready to do it right yet. Uh, there's just like so many ways to do it wrong. Um, so that and that's when I think about a lot because it feels like I don't want to not do it just because I'm afraid of it, but I also don't want to mess it up. Um, and then. Yeah, there were, I I really love objects. I like the actors to be against type. So um, one object I think about doing a lot is a rainbow, and I really want that rainbow to be just like the most dour, sad (laughs) character. Um, And when I was starting to think about doing the pregnancy test episode, um, that was one also that I really felt, I felt a lot of, uh, it felt very important to, Get it, right? There's just, you know, so much you're thinking about there. And I thought about having that actor be very against type, I think, you know, having it be just, like, you know, brutish male or something. Uh, And that, yeah, it felt like my taste, my comedic taste against, like, the story you want to tell, like, we ultimately landed on an actor that was much more the type you might expect. Yeah, but yeah. Hiya. Hi, yeah. Um,
0: I wanted to know how long the performers know about what object they're going to be before you tape it.
1: Usually, a few days. Um, yeah, I guess they they have their choices, uh, maybe a week or two ahead. Um, but we really. Uh, finalise it a few days before which is kind of like an ideal amount of time where they're they can think about it and not forget about it
0: um, One of the beautiful unexpected things about the show is the skill of the interviewer um, it's you're fabulous interviewing these objects and so I want to ask about a detail to illuminate something about process so with Louis, one of the surprising moments that um, always gets a laugh when I'm playing it to other people is where you circle back and ask him how he knew about Jaws.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I just wondered if before you went into the interview, so with all the research you've done and um, interactions with the actor beforehand, did you know Jaws was going to come up or was, was that sitting on your mind as he talked about what he um, wanted in being drunk in the future?
1: Yeah, no, I I I didn't know he was gonna bring up Jaws. He actually in the live in the full recording, he was his character was very obsessed with movies. Like I think he he told ta- he told a story about Jurassic Park and all the and it was all it was all these times that he'd been taken out of the fridge and sat on the counter and almost drunk and then put away and just Luke was always watching movies. Um, and I in an edit for that. I originally had, I think, the Jurassic Park scene. And uh, the editor said, I can believe him seeing one movie. I can't believe him seeing two movies. <laughs> I was like, we're talking about a can of cola. <laughs> um, yeah. That was like one of those edits where you're like, OK, you're right, but it also tells me we're on the right track. Because like, you believe something, you know?
2: What kind of questions get you the best answers?
1: Oh, God, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, yeah, I I will bail myself out. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, uh, specifics are really good with the show, having very specific questions. Um, but so we always have a couple real stories that the object tells me during the course of the episode. Um, like... Uh, the Connor, the painting reveals this thing that the Olympics had art comp that you could win a gold medal in painting until 1948. Um, so like that kind of story um, and I hold those and then I prompt the actor very specifically like, hey we're about to do the painting thing um, I'm going to ask you a question and then tell me that story and they have a little, that's the only part where there's any script. Um, and when an interview is not going well i will bring i will ask those questions um because they give a really solid real thing that then we improvise afterward um so yeah i think like any que- in this show at least any question with some reality in it um gives us tools uh, yeah
3: um how often or ever do you do recordings and they just don't work, and they—you just cannot run it, and you know, you shelve it and move on. How often does that does that happen? And is there any commonalities in terms of what goes wrong to make those interviews fall apart?
1: Uh, it was twenty five percent of the time they failed. Um, we've probably, through hard work, gotten to twenty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's so—it's so sad because it's—I'm um, only working with people that I really like and um, I don't ask friends to do it anymore I used to do that and I don't because I don't like telling friends it doesn't work Um, uh, yeah and the things that keep it from working are when the character is only focused on the humans around it and the human perspective on it so while they're playing an object, they're only talking about people, um, and the hardest thing I think for the actors is to have a outward perspective, you know, um, and not be defining themselves compared to humans. That's like a really hard place for a human being to get. Um, but that's the thing that that kills things. Also, sometimes it's just there's just no magic, you know. Like there's no. Um, I was doing one interview with um, a garbage can that uh, that I killed. And uh, we were talking about the, the garbage cans at Disney World. Disney is really weird about garbage, so we were talking about that. Um, and I kept trying to get to this place where we would make... Like, he said this thing about how the garbage cans were, for some reason, not part of the magic kingdom. Like, everything else was magic, but what if the garbage cans were magic? And I kept trying to push like him to imagine being a magic garbage can. Uh, <laughs> this is, I don't, I, and we just could never get to a place where um, it felt, that felt like a real image. I don't know. I, yeah. I just like need somebody to pretend exactly with like, we need to pretend in collaboration. And if that's not happening, it just doesn't work. There, Garbage cans at Disney World are painted a specific color called go away green. Everything at Disney World that you're not supposed to look at is painted the same color. Go away green. Anyway.
0: Something that I really love about the podcast is that it encourages us really delightfully to think about someone else's perspective. And it feels really important at this time how much does that how much does it matter to you that what you're making is important or worthy? Mm. <laughs> As in like, you know, it has some greater political like it's making the world a better place.
1: Uh I hear from a lot of people who talk about the empathy in the show and how it makes them like they listen to the pregnancy test and they feel empathy for a pregnancy test and then they question, wait, how and like and also okay, so I'm thinking about my empathy. Do I, I am I having the same empathy for the people in my lives? Like people are having that conversation, um, and that's not a goal of the show at all. Like I didn't intend for that to happen, and um, but I love that it's happening. Um, I mean, I really, I just, I want the show to just be um, good and entertaining and affecting. Um, like, I don't need it to be doing anything. I'm glad that it is. Um, I got, uh, I got an email. <laughs> sorry, this. I got an email from somebody who, um, this woman who said, uh, sorry, that her. Um, her son is autistic and uh, they listen to the show together and he's very, he was very non-communicative and through the show um, they were able to talk in a way that they hadn't before. And he could talk about, <laughs> he could talk about his emotions with her in a way that he had never been able to before. And it was just like, Holy shit. Like I did not, that's, I'm done, like, (laughs) yeah, anyway. It's a
0: very good accident.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely an accident, but it's a good accident.
0: I think we have time for one more question. There's one up the back.
1: How did you separate, since the Coke was technically, the can of, sorry, the can of cola, technically two things, super technical. (laughs) (laughs) It
2: was the actual liquid inside, the sugar and all that, and then it was also the aluminum
5: american
1: um and you said it was going to be a fence later how could you like what's the rules on that yeah i mean that was lewis's whole struggle was like what am i am i my you know is the soul the the mind is, is is the soul the soda is the body the can is it are we all both of those things combined uh yeah, I think probably we would have been cheating, Lewis. I think I think the soda was the soul, ultimately. But yeah, which is now somehow in me.
0: Ian, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thanks to Ian Schillag and Radiotopia. Thanks also to Tegan Nichols, who recorded this session on conference day. The Audiocraft podcast is produced and mixed by Ryan Pemberton, with production help on this episode by Brianna Kennedy. Theme music is produced by James Milsom. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the Audiocraft podcast. New episodes from 2019's festival will appear in your feed every week, and you can find our back catalogue there too. There are sessions going back to 2016 full of audio wisdom. If you liked this session, you'll want to have a listen to Under the Hood, what this is about. Jessie Cox and Belinda Lopez delve into interviewing, structuring and editing a great narrative podcast.
3: I think we, we're both
0: really happy to do is go down false trails. Like, you know, we'll go and investigate stuff and be like, oh, it's not a story. Um, and also put in a lot of time before we even press record. So really get to know this person um, you can call it a pre-interview. It's like, but it's really bonding in a way. It's, and, and, and in doing that, it has led us down narrative paths that are not the most obvious when you first meet that person. If you haven't already, sign up for our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au and find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Audiocraft Fest.